1: conscience doesn't make the standards, it applies the standards, whether they're good or bad, right or wrong. You can call this a moral sense, but this moral sense is marred. That moral sense that we all carry in is marred, and it's marred by sin. Our conscience has been marred by sin. It's been persuaded by desire. It's been persuaded by lust. It's been persuaded by temptation and pride. Why? We're imperfect creatures.
0: Everyone has a conscience, an inner sense of what's right and wrong. However, as Pastor Dave shares in his teaching, following your conscience isn't always wise. Because of sin, your moral sense is skewed. Pastor Dave says that your conscience can only apply the standards you've set for yourself, regardless of if they're right or wrong. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 23, as he begins his message, A Clear Conscience. You are assured.
1: We're going to be in Acts 23. We're starting a new chapter today. Acts 23, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 5. I'd like to read aloud if you want to follow along silently, please. Acts 23, beginning in verse 1. Then Paul looked earnestly at the council and said, Men and brethren, I have lived in good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. In 1940, a movie came out starring a puppet and a cricket. A couple of you shaking your heads. yeah, you know. The movie was called Pinocchio." It, it was, it's a timeless classic. But well, in that movie, Jiminy Cricket sings a song entitled, "Always Let Your Conscience be Your Guide." And it's really cool, because right before he sings this song, he's, he's visited by the blue fairy. I don't make this stuff up, folks. This is a true story. He's visited by the blue fairy, and she tells him that he is now going to be Pinocchio's conscience. He is going to be Pinocchio's conscience. And Pinocchio hears that, and Pinocchio says, what's a conscience? And Jiminy Cricket answers, oh, a conscience is that still small voice that people don't listen to. That's the trouble with the world today. I like that. Then he goes on to sing his song, always let your conscience be your guide. Now, I did not click to hear the melody, so I'm not going to try to sing it. But listen to the words of this song. It's pretty interesting in light of what we're studying. It it, it really is. So bear with me here. He says, when you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. When you meet temptation, the urge is very strong. Give a little whistle, give a little whistle. Not just a little squeak, pucker up and blow. And if your whistle's weak, yell Jiminy Cricket, right? Listen, take the straight and narrow path. If you start to slide, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. Always let your constant be your guide. Take the straight and narrow path. And if you start to slide, give a little whistle, give a whistle, give a little whistle. Always let your conscience be your guide. Always let your conscience be your guide. I found that to be fascinating. And I did a lot of research on the writer of this to see if there was any Christian backgrounds and things like that. And there are even great studies done on Pinocchio and the Christian theme that possibly might run through Pinocchio. But that's, that's enough for another story. I don't know. But you know the story. Pinocchio gets in all kinds of trouble, and all kinds of things happen to him. You know, his nose grows when he tells a lie. Something happens to his ear. He ends up in the belly of a whale. And at the end of the movie, Jiminy Cricket says, a fine conscience I turned out to be. And he was, indeed, a bad conscience. Which leads me to the fact that a conscience can be a great motivator, but it also can be a bad guide. A conscience can be a great motivator, but a conscience can be a bad guy. All of us have a conscience. All of us have a conscience. It's that inner voice that tells you what's right and wrong. When I was growing up, I used to look for my conscience when I got in trouble. Didn't you? Every cartoon I ever saw, a conscience would appear on our hero's shoulder, right? Little angel? On this side, little devil on this side, and they would talk back and forth, and there would eventually be some kind of a fight when the, when the hero or whoever was going through this dilemma had to make a choice. I always look don't see where the, where the angel was. But it's been said that the, the only way to have a good conscience is to have a bad memory. The only way to have a good conscience is a bad memory. But in our study today, which is entitled A Clear Conscience, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul claims. He says, I've lived in good conscience until this day. And this gets him into a lot of trouble. So as we study today, I want you to look for three different types of consciences, which I'm going to... Is that such a word, consciences? Did I say that? I just did. Anyhow, there's three types. It's a good conscience or a clear conscience. It's a seared conscience and a weakened conscience. Those are the three I'm going to look at in my study. And there are other consciences. There's a defiled conscience and there's an evil conscience, according to Scripture. We might mention those. But I'm going to particularly look at the good conscience, the seared conscience, and the uh, weakened conscience. Let me set the scene for you, if I will, or if I may. Paul's come to Jerusalem. He had been warned time and time again by the Holy Spirit, not to enter Jerusalem, but he's here. And what followed is a riot in which he was nearly beaten to death. He's rescued by the Romans, and the commander allowed Paul to address this angry mob. And we remember, we studied it. We called it his apologia, or his defense. Paul gave his defense. And, and, and everybody was listening to him until he mentioned one word, Gentiles. This started another riot. And once again, the Roman soldiers had to come in and they had to rescue Paul from being torn apart by the crowd. Thinking he was guilty of something, the Romans wanted to have him scourged so that he would confess what he was guilty of until they found out he was a Roman citizen. So let's get this straight. He arrives in Jerusalem. There's two riots, one where he's nearly beaten to death, and the Romans want to scourge him, which usually leads to death. Sounds like a typical day in the life of the Apostle Paul. Sounds like another day that he does his work in the Apostle Paul's life. But after all this, Paul is finally now before the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Israelites. He's standing before the Sanhedrin. Now, if you don't know it or not, the Sanhedrin is about 70 to 71 strong. They're the rulers of Israel. They're they're the ones who have the responsibility of interpreting and applying the sacred Jewish law. The high priest of that time presides over the Sanhedrin. They have a legal responsibility to try those who will violate their law. John Corson calls the Sanhedrin the Jewish Supreme Court. The Roman commander wanted this to happen. He wanted Paul to go before the Sanhedrin. He wanted them to be in front of the Sanhedrin so that he would know why they're accusing Paul, because if there really was a reason why they were accusing Paul, then the Jews had a legal right given to them by Rome to try him. They also had a legal right given to them by Rome to execute them if they found him guilty of breaking one of their Jewish laws. Remember this argument with Jesus about who was, who was responsible and who had the authority over him. So Paul now is standing before this group. Now remember something. Paul was once a member of this group. They believe Paul was once a member of the Sanhedrin being a Pharisee, the good old boys club. He's standing in front of them. Now, I'm sure there's still some there that he recognizes. I'm sure he stood there and went, oh, yeah, there's George and there's Frank and Frank and there's Dane and there's Joe. Yeah, I got, I got some buddies on this court. This is pretty good. I feel pretty good about this. I got some guys in there. And he stood in there in front of the council. Remember, this was his lifelong dream. He gets to stand in front of the elders of Israel and he gets to tell them about Jesus Christ. This was his lifelong passion that he might demonstrate God's love to this group. This is great. He wants, I can't believe it. I'm going to stand in front of there and I'm going to witness to the rulers of Israel. My dear friends, this is what I've been praying for. I finally get the witness of my friends on the council. I know they're going to listen to me, and I know they're going to accept Jesus Christ. This is going to be great. Sometimes we think just because there's a familiar or a familiarity with someone, it gives us a segue to Jesus. Sometimes we use our familiarity with people that we know to bring them to Jesus. And this is a good thing. However, it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes the people you want most to come into the kingdom, the people you love the most, like your family, are like those that you've hung out for a long, long time before you became a Christian. You want them to come into the kingdom, but they're the hardest ones that you can get into the kingdom. Why? Well, Jesus said the prophet's not without honor in his own home. They know you. They've seen you. They watched you develop. They, maybe they haven't seen this great change in you that you've seen in your life, and maybe they're resident to say, I don't want any part of this. So sometimes familiarity can be against you. And that's what happens in this case. So as Paul begins to address the Sanhedrin, look what he says in verse 21 in the first part of that, 21a. Then Paul looked earnestly at the council and said, men and brethren, as he stared intently into their faces, as he stared intently into their faces, he saw some of the people he knew. He was familiar with them, so he called them brethren. Yo, brothers. Yo, bro. You know, This was a lack of respect on Paul's part. He was once one of them, because usually when you stood in front of this group, you said, blessed fathers. You treated them with royalty. You treated them like they wanted to be treated. I mean, after all, they were high up on the ladder, and you're just a peon. It was customary to call this group of judges fathers, but calling them brethren implies a familiarity, as I said, because Paul was once a member of this group. I mean, it's hard for, him to, it's hard for me to think that, that as he looked at this group and see all his buddies there, that he would dress them as father, fathers. They're his brethren. They're his brothers, so why wouldn't he? But what he says next doesn't sit very well, especially with the high priest. doesn't sit very well. So look at the rest of the, of the verse. I have lived in good conscience before God until this day. So as we look at Paul's statement here, we're going to divide it into two parts. First of all, a little bit about the wordage here. The first word I see here is the word lived. I've lived in a good conscience. And in the Greek, if I can pronounce it, it's politio-o-amin. It means to live as a citizen. It's actually where we get our word politics. Paul is affirming that he was a loyal Jew. He's affirming that he was loyal to them and he lived as a good citizen. He didn't break any Jewish law. He didn't do anything that they're accusing him of. And he has a conscience that proves he's not guilty, so why are they condemning him? Why are they condemning him by Jewish law? That leads us to the second word and the word that we're going to spend most of our study on. And that's one of Paul's favorite words, believe it or not. It's the word conscience. Paul is recorded by Luke as using the word conscience twice in the book of Acts. Once in 23.1 and in 24.16 he uses the word again. But he uses it himself 23 times in his epistles. In his letters he writes 23 times about conscience. Now the definition of conscience is a self-awareness. It's that built-in faculty that judges whether or not an act one has carried out or plans to carry out, is in harmony with one's moral standards. That's the official definition. It is the interjudge, judge It's the inner witness. The Bible tells us that everyone is born with a conscience. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 7, verse 11, when he says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The implication here is, is that everyone has the knowledge of good, no matter how elementary that knowledge may be, or how distorted that knowledge may be. But we all have that knowledge. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 2, verses 12 through 15, For as many have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law. And as many have sinned in the law, will be judged by the law. Not for the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are law themselves, who show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, And between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So we see that everyone has a conscience. I'm sure you've had issues with your conscience from time to time. I'm sure that you've been there. It's very interesting to me that Warren Rearsby says this, a conscience does not set the standard. He says, a conscience does not set the standard. A conscience only applies the standard. In other words, the conscience of a thief would bother him if he told the truth about his fellow crooks just as much as a Christian's conscience would convict him if he told a lie about his friends. Conscience doesn't make the standards. It applies the standards, whether they're good or bad, right or wrong. You can call this a moral sense. But this moral sense that all humanity carries within us is marred. That moral sense that we all carry in is marred, and it's marred by sin. Our conscience has been marred by sin. It's been persuaded by desire. It's been persuaded by lust. It's been persuaded by temptation and pride. Why? We're imperfect creatures. We are imperfect creatures, and when God created us to be perfect, sin entered, and we were defiled. We no longer were perfect. Wiersbe again puts it this way. The conscience may be compared to a window that lets in the light. God's law is the light. And the cleaner the window is, the more light shines in. As the window gets dirty, the light gets dimmer, and finally it becomes darkness. A good conscience or a pure conscience, Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 3.9, is the one that lets the light of God shine, and we're properly convicted if we do wrong, and we are encouraged if we do right. That's the proper way, a pure conscience. But there's a defiled conscience that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 8, 7. And that's one that has been sinned against so many times that that conscience is now no longer dependable. It's no longer dependable. If a person continues to sin against his conscience, he may end up with an evil conscience that we can find out in Hebrews 10, Or a seared conscience in 1 Timothy 4, 2. when he should feel convicted if he did right, rather than that was what's wrong. In other words... Evil becomes good, and good becomes evil. And our conscience doesn't know the difference between the two. It's a dangerous place to be, folks. It's a dangerous place to be. Satan has many tricks up his sleeve, and he keeps us off that narrow way to Christ. He keeps us off that narrow way. But we must be ever be true to him, and by his Holy Spirit, is His guide. We are guided by the Holy Spirit, which now resides in us. We must immerse ourselves in the Word of God on a daily basis to stand in the strength and the power of the Lord, the power of His might. If you're spending time in God's Word and it's not producing love from a pure heart, if it's not producing a good conscience, if it's not producing a sincere faith, something's wrong. Something's wrong, because that's what the Word of God does. If you're in legalism, it twists the word of God so that instead of showing love, we are harsh and judgmental. Instead of having a good conscience, we always feel condemned knowing that we don't measure up. And and instead of a sincere faith, we, we practically trust in our own ability to please God maybe some of you are there today, resting in your own ability to please God. If I just could read five more chapters a day, I know God will bless me. If I just could pray more, I know God will bless me. If I could just do more for the church or or do more, I know God will bless me. Those are works. That's works-oriented. Paul said, I have a conscience that's void of offenses towards God, and this is a clear conscience. One that is void of offenses towards God. It's been cleansed by Jesus Christ. It's been cleansed and our conscience is gone. It is an interesting though, Paul says, I have a clear conscience. Didn't Paul persecute the church? Didn't he cause innocent people to die? How could he claim to have a good conscience? And this is why the high priest was, not, uh, was upset Paul was saying something that didn't make sense because he's violated the Jewish law by having associations with the Gentiles. He violated their law by teaching against the law of Moses. So how could he say he had a clear conscience? Some believe that Paul was just living up to the light that he had, that he possessed. He himself said in Philippians 3 that he was blameless according to the law. Paul said he was blameless according to the law. So from the outside, Paul seemed impeccable. He was a radical for righteousness. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Because of this, John Corson said, This proves to us that although a conscience can be a good goad, it's a lousy guide. And that's what I said earlier. Conscience is a great motivator, but it's a lousy guide. We must be led by the Holy Spirit. We must be led by the Holy Spirit. He will lead you in all truth. It was Paul's conscience that led him to do those things to the Christians, to enslave them, throw them in jail, and eventually execute them. It was his conscience that led him to do that. But his conscience was, able to, was unable to guide him to the truth. It was Jesus Christ that revealed the truth to Paul on the way to Damascus that day. It was Christ that revealed the truth to him. After Paul became a Christian, it was the bright light of God's glory that was shining in his heart. He had that heart transplant that we've talked about so many times. Paul began to see things in a different light. He saw things in God's light. It was then that he realized and he said to Timothy, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. We've said many times that when you stand in the glory and the light of God and when that shines deep in your heart, you see yourself as you really are. Unworthy, unclean, and unfit to stand before a most holy God on your own efforts. When God's glorious light shines in your heart, your sin is revealed, and it's disgusting to you, and you want to get rid of it. You want to jettison it. You want want to remove it. You know the only person that can remove it is God himself. You, You want to get rid of it as best you can. You want to come to God and say, I've sinned. I've fallen short of your mark. I confess my sin to you. and I'm standing now in the blood of Jesus Christ, asking forgiveness for that sin. And when you do that, Christ comes and stands there with his arms open wide and says, come here. Come to me. Let me love on you. He accepts you in that sinful state, and his blood cleanses away your sin. He wants to cleanse you from all sin and all unrighteousness. He wants to be your conscious guide. Don't let Jiminy Cricket be your guide. Let Christ through the Holy Spirit be your guide. He will guide your conscience clear. So so what happens next in our study is pretty startling, and I'm sure it startled Paul. Look at verse 2. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. The high priest was so incensed by what Paul had said about his conscience that he ordered Paul to be struck in the mouth. How dare you, Paul, say that you live a good conscience after all the laws you broke, the Jewish laws, by associating with the Gentiles. How dare you? You deserve to be struck in the mouth. But the high priest was violating his own law. It was illegal, according to Deuteronomy 25, to strike someone on the mouth without at least proving him guilty. And then you didn't hit him on the mouth. You hit him on the back with rods. Look at Deuteronomy 25 in the law. But after being struck, Paul reacts in this harsh manner. This is yet another matter of controversy. This whole section is a matter of controversy. Did Paul act out of love? Did he act out of character? We don't know. It remains unknown. But we do know he didn't act according to what Jesus taught in Luke 6.29. What did Jesus teach? To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. Wow. That's tough. That's tough. That's tough to do. Here Paul gets blasted by somebody on the cheek. I don't think he offered the other cheek. That's tough to do. You are sure.
0: The stories you've been hearing about Peter, Paul, Stephen, and the many other followers of Jesus are meant to inspire you and encourage you. These brave people lived long ago and had the privilege of seeing the gospel message spread from its point of origin, Jesus himself. Their testimony and diligence in spreading the good news of hope and new life changed hearts and saved countless people, and continues on even today through the writings and acts and the rest of the New Testament. However, the lives you were studying weren't without trial. Each disciple of Jesus faced persecution in some form, yet it never swayed them to abandon their faith. What difficulties are you facing for Jesus now? Don't lose heart. Remember that you're sharing the truth, and that the truth can set people free. You have the Savior of the world on your side, and He will stand with you through every trial and triumph. We're so glad you joined us for today's edition of Assure Hope, as we continue to study the book of Acts with Pastor Dave Schenck. If you'd like to listen to more teachings, we invite you to visit our website, assurehoperadio.com. Feel free to download and share Pastor Dave's teachings or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Are you in the Cape May area? If so, we want to meet you. Come join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. at Calvary Chapel, Cape May to learn more from the Word, sing praises to your Lord, and fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Find out more at assurehoperadio.com. Thanks for joining us today on Assure Hope. Rescued us. we're ready now to stand up on our